you know, there's all kinds of things I could tell you about her bio. She's currently uh, doing her PhD at Ohio University studying race and religion. She and her husband, Del, who are here with their beautiful daughter, are planting a church in Cincinnati together. Um, but the thing that really comes to mind for me about Ania is this memory of her at She Leads last year uh, where she started our conversation uh, in a place of kind of lament. That was what I had asked her to do, to begin the day by sharing what is really painful about what it means to be a woman in the church right now and what it means to be an African-American woman in the church. And she was honest about her own pain. She was honest about what is broken in the church and it was difficult to hear some of those things. And at the same time, at the end of the day, we had gone through a whole kind of story arc through the process of the day and at the end of the day we had a time of worship and Ania was dancing by the end of the day and so for me Ania embodies that prophetic imagination as Walter Brueggemann describes it that I think our entire church is called to at this moment of both lamenting and dancing it makes no sense that we could do both uh, and yet I, I watch that at work in you, Ania. So please come and share with us. Welcome, Ania Okwobi. Well, I am just grateful and humbled to be here. This is my first missio gathering of this sort, uh, but it certainly won't be my last. I knew this was a special place with the little conversations I've been having in the rows and the passion uh, you all bring to this place. So thank you for helping create this space together. Now I wanna tell you a story about a young man named TJ. And when TJ's house, when he grew up and his mama put on gospel music on Saturday morning, TJ knew it was time for something, but it wasn't time for worship. It was time to clean the house. Somebody knows what I'm talking about right now. And TJ was gonna scrub all morning. But it was okay, because on Sunday, TJ was rewarded by some of his favorite foods. There would be mac and cheese, there would be collard greens. TJ knew after that Saturday cleaning, he was gonna throw down on Sunday. Now TJ's father, on the other hand, when TJ's mother put on the gospel music, he would sometimes sneak and change it to Hillsong, because that's what he wanted to listen to while he cleaned. TJ's father even had the audacity one Sunday afternoon to bring in some potato salad laced with raisins. But that's okay, we still love TJ's daddy. Let's not turn on him. And so at home, TJ always felt at home because all of the aspects of his identity were embraced. But when he went out to other places, it was not so. And especially when he walked through the doors of the church, he would walk through one church and he would hear his gospel music from his mama, but his father part felt like it was missing. And then he'd walk through the doors of another church and he'd hear songs from his daddy, but that gospel was missing. TJ felt like he had to check one part of his identity or another at the door. Now, we may not all be biracial here, but how many of us have gone into Christian spaces feeling like we had to check part of our identity at the door? Jesus. Be it your ethnicity, your gender, your theological background, or your generational tendencies, you may feel like you have to change part of yourselves to fit in. But the good news is it will not always be so. We know that the multicultural future of the church has been bought and paid for. 
This scripture was talked about last night, but it bears repeating. In Ephesians 2, 14 through 15, we see that Jesus himself has created one new humanity. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, thus making peace. And then further on in the scripture, we see a vision in Revelation 5, 9, and 7, 9 of every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping around the throne of God. And we realize in that moment that our, our language or our, our ethnic background, that these are not temporal things, but they are eternal parts of our identity. And that these things will continue on through our, our eternity. But with these pictures before us, with the cross work of Ephesians 2 already done, and the eternal promise of Revelation 5 and 7, why? Are we not fully awake to the multicultural now of the church? Why are we content to live with churches that are 10 times more segregated than the neighborhoods they sit in and 20 times more segregated than public schools? Why are we content to live with churches where people with disabilities are some of the most underrepresented among our faith communities? Why are we content to live in churches where we can point to a church or a denomination and reliably know the socioeconomic class of the people within it? Why are we content to live with a church where women experience less upward mobility in our faith communities than outside of them? I don't know for sure, but I think it may be because we've forgotten the worth of the multicultural church the united church that Jesus prayed for in John 17. Many of us have full lives and full ministries with just the people around us. And so there's always the next budget to do. There's always the next strategy to come up with. And so we may say and relegate this idea of inclusion and building the multicultural church to the background and say, it's a nice to have, but it's not something I can work on right now. But what I would say is that we have lost a longing for what could be. I was reminded by a friend yesterday that what we do because we think we have to, some people treat the multicultural church like uh, this is an obligation. And what we do out of obligation is temporary and it's done half-heartedly and it doesn't last. But when we develop a deep longing for something, we will give our lives to see it come to pass. And so what I'm hoping today is that Holy Spirit will develop in us a deep longing for what the multicultural church can be. I wanna show you a couple of pictures for a minute up on the screen. Um, these pictures are incredibly zoomed in, fragments of a whole. And I want you to shout out when you think you know what the picture is showing. Um, we're Black Baptists this week, so it's okay to talk in church. All right. So what do you see here? That's an apple. Show the other picture. Apple, you are right. Uh, next one. Oh, you're, you're in the vegetable lane, but it's not. It's the top of a Coca-Cola bottle. All right, what's the next picture? Uh, 
What's that? People are hungry in here. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for that. Uh, stick of gum. And then the last one. Toilet paper. Nope. Floss. Nope. Nope. All right. It's a tea bag. Yes. These pictures reveal something to us about the multicultural now of the church or the need for it. The zoomed in images were fragments of a whole. And while they were fascinating, they were enough to captivate our attention, they were not true representations of the bigger picture. They couldn't reveal the structure or function of what we were looking at. They were a small part of reality made bigger than they actually were. This zoomed in version of reality reflects our view of Jesus when our experience of him comes from just one group of people. Let me say more about that. We often talk about seeing Jesus in people, and this practice is good because it allows us to see the worth in all humanity. But we miss the, the bigger truth that we're saying in this. If Jesus is in all the people, then we miss the parts of Jesus in the people we fail to see. If our experience of church is exclusively middle class, we get zoomed in on a Jesus from the suburbs. Instead of seeing the Jesus who wasn't just a friend of the marginalized, but as Ephraim rightly said last night, was himself marginalized, the son of a carpenter and from a nothing town. When we get zoomed in on a Jesus from a white cultural background, we may miss the Jesus of the lynching tree that James Cone taught us about. When we get zoomed in on an experience of church that is exclusively male-led, we may miss the ways in which the tomb of Jesus parallels the womb of a woman and the ways in which Jesus birthed this one new humanity in his own body. And if we get zoomed in on a church that is profoundly nationalistic and America first, we miss Jesus the refugee. I long for Jesus desperately, and I know you do too. Otherwise, you wouldn't be in this room. But I am fully persuaded that I will never know him without knowing all of the pieces of the body. I don't want to know black bougie Jesus, <laughs> the one with the dreads and not the ultra perm. <laughs> but I want to know the full Jesus. I am fully persuaded to the extent that we miss seeing other people, we miss seeing Jesus. And what happens when we do this? You know, it's interesting to me that as Jesus put on flesh and dwelt among us, the disciples fell in love with a person. They didn't fall in love with a, a symbol or an object. But when we take this Jesus and, and we zoom in on our particular uh, part, that's what we're presenting to other people. We're no longer presenting a person whom they can fall in love with. We're presenting a, a religious object or a religious symbol, or dare I even say it, our own idols. When we zoom in on one particular part of Jesus and we don't allow the multicultural uh, now of the church to flourish, I believe that's part of what we're seeing with the duns. Now we talk a lot about the nuns, but the duns are fully 30% of our population who at one time were engaged in our churches and now are not. They've either gone on to become nuns 
or they've gone on to become people who still identify with Christ, but have decided not to join themselves to a faith community. And we know why the Duns are done with church. Fully 60% of them say, because I came to church with my questions, and instead of getting conversation, I got pat answers. I got dismissed. I was made to feel ashamed. I was made to feel like I was a doubter and I was no longer welcome. And that's what happens when we need a zoomed in version of Jesus. We can't deal with questions because it falls outside of my purview. But if we were able to allow the multicultural now of the church to flourish, there would have been ample conversation that the people who are now done can join in with. I experienced this myself before I was a Christian. I was a college student, not a very moral college student, but one day I was just like, it's Sunday, I'm up, maybe I should go to church, so I did. And wouldn't you know it, the person next to me died. I'm not kidding. So I was confused because I was like, I know that's not how it's supposed to work, aren't you supposed to strike me down, not the person next to me? But I was sitting there, you know, listening, kind of observing what's going on. The man next to me slumped over, his bowels released, and some nice deacons in white carried him outside. And as the sermon continued, I vaguely heard in the lobby some paramedics yelling, clear! But the service continued! We could have used the multicultural now of the church at that moment because if there had been just one Pentecostal in that place, somebody would have prayed for that man to get up. <laughs> he might not have gotten up, but at least it would have felt a little more normal. That's what happens when we get too zoomed in on one picture of Jesus. So if not a zoomed in picture of Jesus, what sort of picture of Jesus should we strive for? Well, how many of you people have not seen or um, played with a kaleidoscope ever or in a long time? A long time, here, here you go. Anybody else? All right. Watch out. Okay, those are hard. Maybe I shouldn't throw any more of those. I'm not very good at throwing. All right, here you go, runner. Run one back. You can look through that. I had, yeah, you put it to your face and you kind of turn it around that way, yeah, and you spin it and you can see all kinds of colors and patterns and shapes and things and it's really fun. I hadn't thought about a kaleidoscope in years, uh, but a couple of weeks ago as I was preparing for today, uh, God woke me up with an image of my, in my head and it was like a kaleidoscope and there were all these slices, but the slices instead of just being colors were people. And even though it didn't look like a face, I could tell that I was looking at the face of God when I saw that. In the kaleidoscope of people, we start to really see God. And the mechanics of a kaleidoscope involve reflective surfaces pointed towards each other. Now we are the reflective surfaces. We reflect God's glory. And so when we begin to turn towards each other instead of away from each other or against each other, the face of God and all of its intricacy and all of its beauty and all of its glory is there for the world to see. We long for the multicultural now of the church because we long for Jesus. And these things have to be one and the same. B 
Being able to fully see others is the only way we will ever see Jesus. But how do we know if we're doing it? How does our leadership into the multicultural now look like? Well, the first step is bringing people together. If you don't interact with people from other cultures, you don't stand a chance of actually seeing them. I had the opportunity to be in Australia last year, and at the beginning of every meeting they had, they did this beautiful um, saying about uh, giving honor to the aboriginals and the fact that we were on their land. But then I looked at the survey data, and I came to find out that fewer than half of the churchgoers in Australia have ever met an Aboriginal person. And so when we talk about multiculturalism, but people from other ethnic backgrounds and races and, and neighborhoods and theological backgrounds are not in our life, we're performing empty gestures. And so we know it's not enough, though, to just bring people in the same room together. Because what happens then is we tend to have diversity but not love and unity because we still center people who are powerful and we still keep on the outskirts the people who have usually been marginalized. So I believe we need a different measure of success than numerical diversity can give us. And that brings me to the title of my talk, What We Owe to Each Other. Now I gotta admit to you, when I titled that, I really just thought it was a line from The Good Place. Yeah. You know, kind of like, what would Chidi do? Yeah. But it's not, it's this whole other thing. It turns out it is a theory by uh, philosopher T.M. Scanlon uh, called contractualism. He lays out in this book, What We Owe to Each Other. And I thought this is a theory that is instructive for us in this moment. Because what contractualism do or does or how it decides what's morally right or what's morally wrong is you have to be able to justify your action so that no one could reasonably object to it. And I know what you're saying, the church is not a democracy. Um, and you're right, because this is even more so um, because it doesn't take a majority to object to what you're doing. If we're sitting in this room and I take an action and even one of you can reasonably object to it, that means my action is morally wrong. Now, why is that helpful for us as we think about the multicultural now of the church? Well, I think it's important because it centers the marginalized and the minority opinions among us. It doesn't matter if you have a PhD or a GED or neither. If you can reasonably object, your opinion matters. And it doesn't matter that you know, only one person thinks this because nobody else has your full life experience. When we live in a multicultural now, we don't pick and choose who matters or whose issues matter. They all do. The second thing is the person taking the action is the one who has to justify the action. Too often when we are in diverse spaces and, and for example, a person of color speaks up and says, the way that you just said that was offensive, or um, no, you can't touch my hair. They are the ones who then get put on the spot to have to justify why they are offended. Yeah. And so after a while, they're just like, I'm just not gonna say anything anymore. Contractualism turns this on its head and the person taking the action now has to justify it. And so that minority opinion in the room gets heard without having to constantly defend themselves. The third thing I really like this is the strong language that it uses. It calls something morally right 
or morally wrong. And oftentimes we say, it's not the best, or you know, we will get there eventually, instead of calling the things that exclude other people what they are, which is sin. And so it goes straight to the heart of that. Now, I'm not saying clearly that we need to replace the morality of the Bible with moral philosophy, but just take this for food for thought. So how would this work? If you decide not to speak about the border because it's just too contentious at your church and you don't believe it's for the best right now, you have to be able to justify it to the immigrant in your pews. If you want to avoid talking about consent in your youth ministry because some parents might get upset, you have to justify it to the one in five women who have experienced sexual assault in your church. If you want to move your children in your neighborhood from their failing public school to a private school because you have the means to do it, you have to justify it to every child that's left behind in that school. In such a system, with such a morality, we would have to see, turn toward, and hear from all the people. And it radically limits our ability to stick with what's comfortable for the powerful. It pushes us. But if it's too complicated, you know, I think Jesus called this loving your neighbor as yourself. Sociologically, there is no institution no organization that we've studied where the rich aren't treated better than the poor, where white are not more advantaged than darker hued, where men aren't given more authority than women, where disabled are as welcome as abled, where the educated aren't given more voice. Honestly, if you look at the research, these things are so far from happening, they feel impossible. But the church, is supposed to be the topsy-turvy, upside-down, inside-out place where this is possible because we have Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. If we learn to long for the multicultural now of the church because we long for Jesus, the prayer of Jesus in John 17 will be realized and the world will know. We have to embrace unity, not because it's easy, nor because we should, but because we long to see Jesus and have him revealed. Then we will awake to the multicultural now of the church. Thank you.